0: i'm james and this is the chats with james podcast in this episode i'm chatting with brian cantrell this episode was recorded on the 10th of january 2021 for more episodes and show notes please visit jamesmunz.com podcast new episodes are released every tuesday enjoy special thanks to louis zong for the music all right so how's it going it's going well how's it going with you it's going well. It's it's late on a Sunday here, so almost into the new week. But uh, yeah, it's great to have the chance to talk to you.
1: It's great to be here. Yeah. it's it's, it's been a it's been a tumultuous week here in the
0: U.S. So really excited <laughs> to talk about anything else. Honestly, I'm really <laughs> excited to talk about technology. Definitely. Before we get started, do you want to give yourself a quick introduction?
1: Sure. I'm Brian Cantrell. I'm the uh, CTO and co-founder of Oxide Computer Company, uh, along with Steve Tuck and Jess Frizzell. Uh, We are a venture-backed computer company, which is exciting. So, um, trying to bring the innovations from the hyperscalers, uh, the Googles and the Facebooks and so on, uh, to the on-prem compute market. Um, Prior to uh, co-founding Oxide, um, I was at Joint, which is a cloud computing provider purchased by, by Samsung in 2016. I was there for what, nine years. And prior to that, I was at sun for 14. So, um, so I guess I should qualify sun microsystems, you know, because it's becoming, (laughs) you know, people are uh, beginning to not know what sun was, but uh, a, I think it's fair to say uh, internet and Unix pioneer um, and definitely was there during um, some really exciting times.
0: Definitely. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I definitely worked on Sun workstations in university. We had a, a whole lab full of those. But yeah, I definitely, it's probably, now that I'm thinking about that, that's already a couple of years ago now. And Oh, it definitely, you know, it's- definitely,
1: whether you realize it or not, you are actually dating yourself. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but it, which, you know what, I'm actually I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of okay with, I mean, it, the, the uh, it was really great to work for Sun. So I had obviously plenty of flaws as well. Um, there were some really great things about the company. And I kind of like the fact that there is no more sun. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, it kind of like it, it, that history has ended. The book is, the, the book is written effectively on it. Um, and it, it's um, there, there, there's something to be said for that, uh, where you don't have to kind of watch a company behave badly in its old age um, or b- behave kind of embarrassingly, like all of that that uh, bad behavior and embarrassment has been taken on by Oracle. So it's
0: fine. mm yeah. I I mean, I think even in the the second podcast episodes, the last one that I've published. So we're recording this on the tenth of January. And I think the second one that I published, we were talking about Sun RPC as sort of the the history of Korba and and totally. things like that. So there's a surprising amount of technology that was either invented or first pioneered. And sometimes it it's already gone through the second or th- or third rebirth. So things like RPC and things like uh, I mean, one of the things that I really put towards Sun is the the concept of thin clients and things like that. And it's been interesting to see, like, you know, we're already on the second or third wave of some of those technologies that were pioneered at Sun. Or as far as I know, they were pioneered at Sun, but maybe they were already a a prior wave. I guess you had TTY uh, terminals and things like that. I guess we're the first wave of that before even... Uh, Thin, yeah, I,
1: I, right. That's right. I mean, you can kind of uh, certainly see um, things, the thin client in particular, you can certainly see echoes of that in the past. But honestly, one of the most jaw-dropping demos I, I ever saw as a technologist was Dwayne Northcutt's original Sunray demo uh, mm. given to, I, I was in the kernel group at the time. Um, Dwayne was at labs um, and gave the demo, of, and this is in 2001 maybe and he's got you know the the movie playing and the sound playing and the desktop and he pulls out the smart card and everything stops obviously goes blank, goes back to a login screen and kind of turns to the next machine plugs it in and up pops his movie playing and it was just it was it was just amazing i mean you knew on the one hand that all of the technology existed for that obviously um, and it was really more an integration breakthrough than anything else but It just shows that when you kind of put together a bunch of known parts, you can create something that is that is just jaw dropping. Uh, It was a very exciting demo to see. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's there's so much of that where it's just like you said, it's it's the integration that matters because there's there's really like the two stages of when we see like these new technologies and someone comes up with a demo where it's possible to do these things or it's possible to do these in piecemeal. And then someone ends up putting it together and you go, oh, Oh, like that. Yeah. Oh, that's what that was for. Like that kind of uh, integration totally. magic.
1: Yeah. And it is funny, right? You you kind of, th- these things kind of build or brew in the background. And then you, you have that kind of that catalytic demo or that catalytic application of it. And you see like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a big deal. And I can remember a couple of those actually over the course of my career. It's been fun to act. You know, this is the nice thing about having done this for a while i I feel i've seen a bunch of those and it's always they're 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 rare but boy are they fun when they happen
0: yeah yeah for sure Uh, i mean we've seen like the one that i can think of is like the iphone is probably the big one for me where i'm like okay we had smart devices that fit in your pocket and we had capacitive touch screens before and we had this before and then like put all together and you go, oh, like I had a a Windows mobile phone at the time, like I had an HTC something or other. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, no, this is future device. Yeah, I've got a keyboard, I've got a menu, I can go on the internet. And then I saw an iPhone, I was like, oh, okay, no, 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 that makes more sense. Like, (laughs) yeah, you know, I have to say on the iPhone,
1: I was a lot slower to get it when they initially announced it. I remember thinking, actually, my barber asked me, should I buy Apple stock based on this iPhone announcement? Mm. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. Apple kind of like has screwed a lot of things up and the, you know, they, they, they kind of go into these new spaces and they – but it's kind of half-hearted and they kind of kill it off. Um, I Fortunately, I think he ignored my, uh, th- my <laughs> admonishment to not – because of course this is, you know, whatever it was, 13 years ago, um, more – but yeah, it was so I, I at that time I was more of a, a cynic, honestly. It took a couple of years before you begin to realize, like, okay, no, this is actually a very big deal. Because remember, like there was there were no even apps. It was only going yeah. to be web apps effectively on that thing.
0: Yeah, that was the second rollout. And I think that was the that was kind of the the one-two punch. Is they came out with this great hardware and it was a really interesting functional platform, but it, it really only had first-party solutions on it. So it felt more like a really slick feature phone then it felt like and it was still a 2g device so i mean it was limited to either wi-fi or incredibly slow internet in that in that time um and i think it's really when they came out with the the iphone 3g that had an app store and i think these weren't all at the same time but when they had like faster connectivity and the ability to build in applications and things like that i think that was like the aha connection moment so from the hardware side i don't i feel like it didn't change too much between the 2g and the 3g but like the whole user experience was what really kind of like popped on that second announcement.
1: Yeah. And you know, I have to say that I confess, so I've never actually never owned an iPhone. Um, hmm. The I, so I've, I've only been on uh, smartphones and or feature phones. And then on, on Android, because I have to say the walled garden just rubbed me the wrong way from the beginning. Hmm. So you, Cause remember way back in the day they were disallowing any app that had it was it could be any kind of programming environment. So I remember in particular they were disallowing Scratch, which is like the kids' oh, that's a shame visual programming. It's like what because like my seven year old is going to make like a Scratch app that can be if like if a seven year old Scratch app can compete with what you Apple are doing, like you've got bigger problems. But I always felt that to be that always really as, as I'm kind of thinking about, like, why did I not think that the iPhone was a bigger breakthrough or why did I not recognize, frankly, th- it to be the breakthrough that it was? I, I really think that that just set me off. I I, I really am. I do not like walled gardens. I, I think I'm a big believer in open systems. I have to tell you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really, really, really important.
0: I've got through generations of phones. So I had, I think I had an iPhone 3GS maybe, like one of, one of the earlier ones. And then I got on Android and I was like, yes, open system, Linux-based. I'm so excited about this. And I was one of those people that would like flash new ROMs on my phone like every day. Right. And then at some point I was like, I just, I want my phone to work. Like I think oh I went, God I think Lord. I flashed yeah. a new ROM right before I went on a business trip or something like that. Right. And it, it just disaster. didn't work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And at that point I was like, okay, now I want, something that works so then i've still been using android phones and about a year ago i exactly i I was like okay well i'm running linux on everything why can't i run linux on my phone or anything like that because i've also like over the years gotten not disillusioned but you know less excited about what google is doing and and anyone who essentially accumulates that much market power ends up being you know that that same kind of market effect and so like i backed one of those uh What's the phone? The Purism phone. But now I've been waiting about a year for that Purism phone. And so now I'm like, well, I really like like the idea of running a Linux phone. And actually in in the Corona times, I need a phone way less. So like my actual usage of the phone has pretty much boiled down to it's what I play Spotify on. So like literally any it's device that could play Spotify would prob- and connect to Bluetooth for my headphones would probably be fine for me. You know what I mean?
1: yeah no I, I definitely know what you mean and i know i feel the same way and i feel that like i i, I feel that these efforts are really laudable they're very important to support but there are also times like i just want something to work and i want the actual yeah. that's why you know in some ways i actually think like the 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 best product in the in the best product that people don't think about is the chromebook i, I love the chromebook mm. because the chromebook actually does just work it is very rugged um, but it also is actually an open system and yeah. has been it's based on gen two, the, right? Right. But it, and, sure and, no. and you know, like I, I love their firmware model, right? The firmware model yeah. has a like, it is your computer. You can actually put your firmware on there, but it's going to actually know that it is your firmware, not their firmware. Um, and I, I, that actually Chromebook was a real model for us, honestly, at Oxide, as we were thinking about what hmm. we wanted to do on the server side. So I think that, um, and i would you would like the 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 phone to look more like the chromebook but it it doesn't really unfortunately it's more proprietary than that
0: yeah i i actually have been to a couple of hardware security conferences and that's what they were saying when when you travel to another country or you're traveling to somewhere where you're not you don't want to be carrying proprietary secrets or, or things like that. Like, let's say you're going as a manufacturer to one of your manufacturing places and you're not comfortable with either the transit or like the storage in your hotel or, or the actual vendors that you're visiting, 100% of the people at that hardware security conference were saying, get a burner Chromebook. Cause like Chromebook oh, by right. itself has a fairly good security model of the firmware and software that operates on it and how locked down it is. And because they only cost like 150 bucks, you wipe it and then donate it to a school when you come back, like never reintegrate it in your corporate environment, but just like, you know, wipe it and give it away to a school or something like that when you get back.
1: Well, right. And I think that actually you've captured both things that are really laudable about the Chromebook, that it is this secure attestable environment, but it is because it's open that you can have that $150 Chromebook. Um, it is that that it's open has allowed many different people to make Chromebooks and to compete on price and so on. And yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I, I again, I I think that we don't in the industry talk often enough about the achievement of the Chromebook. I and mean, we were talking about Sunray earlier. It's it's a similar kind of like Sunray kind of achievement. And right. it's like it's it's there's no one thing. It is it, it, it's a, it's a collection of things that have been integrated thoughtfully. Um, and I mean, we view it as a real model. I said it's been a model for us at Oxide for sure. when terms of the way we're thinking about the server
0: side, yeah, definitely. It's it's one of those it's it's internet as an appliance. You know what I mean? In this in ex, and I don't mean that as a negative way. Like for most people who are consuming media or even producing some media in a limited way, like that's exactly what you want: something that won't break, something that's reliable, something that's easy to fix if it does break. It's you know tied to all the services you use. I mean, I've always been a little I don't know. I'm I use uh, MacBooks for a while. And I kind of always switched back and forth between Linux and MacBooks and things <sighs> like that. And it was, it was always the choice between, do I choose something that's going to work, but not let me do that 10% of things that I want to do, or do I want something that's going to break 10% of the time and is always going to let me do the thing that I want to do. And i flip flipped back and forth and I, my current pendulum swing is, is back on the, everything in my life is Linux side yeah. of things, but I'm, I definitely can understand the desire to just have something that works and is what everyone uses, and you don't have to customize it. It just is an appliance. Yeah, and I, mean? I,
1: you know, I went back. I had used a Mac for a long time because I, my view was like, "Hey, this is Unix on the desktop done right." So I've got you. I mean, what I actually really care about in some ways is Unix. They had poured detrace to the Mac, which is great. And there were like mm. a bunch of good years in there, but the system slowly became more and more proprietary, more and more walled. They made D-Trace harder and harder to use. And I finally got to the point, wherever it was two years ago, when we started Oxide, I'm like, all right, my next machine is definitely a Linux laptop, which I am I, I'm appreciating all the strengths and weaknesses of. I It, it felt so great, I have to say, to be dorking around with my window manager for the first time in like, I I, I loved it. I'm like, I'm editing X defaults. And it felt great to be editing X defaults, which sounds like something I never thought I would say, but
0: that was the make or break for me from switching to Mac was, was I tried out I three window manager for the first time. And I don't, I don't know why like stacking windows. I have a very like distractible brain. And when something's hard to find, it like takes me out of out of my thought process and just being able to have like workspaces with windows that i can't lose was was a really big thing i th- that's like, been oh, a big have you seen the... I,
1: i'm also an i3 user and that's been mm. uh, that's been and i you know i was an FE, i was i felt i was an FEWM dead ender back mm. in the day um but it was it, you know it was very i felt appropriate at midlife for me to go to like rekindle that uh, that that window manager love <laughs> from you know from 1992 um and it was uh it was it's been great i mean i i I think i3 i'm totally with you i think i it is very nice to be able to have these kind of focused areas of work and not have kind of window explosion and so there are a lot of advantages but as you say also like uh there's definitely that last 10 percent that doesn't work or that just kind of misbehaves and you know and also it's like i think it just drives me bonkers this is more of a linuxism than anything but it's like there are like three different ways to do or more six different ways to do any given <laughs> thing. And all of them are like 80% implemented. And and then all of them are like either, either ignorant of one another or at war with one another. And you're just like, all right. <laughs> Jesus
0: so. Yeah. Have you seen a, uh, stuff going on with Azahi Linux? Okay. What's Azahi uh, Linux? Azahi. So it's, um, so there's a guy on Twitter named Mark Han, and he was one of the guys behind a lot of the uh, rooting of consoles and things like that. And he's kind of this dedicated hardware and, you know, walled system developers kind of things. And basically when the, the M one max came out, I mean the, the benchmarks of all of those systems for these arm based laptops, which have really cool vertical integration of hardware. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the benchmarks are really impressive and the battery life is really impressive and things like that, but they had always been sort of locked down. You know, they hadn't, Apple hadn't really talked about what bootcamp was going to look like for these. And so since then, they've published a little bit of information that says, well, you know, there is a way to boot third-party operating systems, but we haven't really like documented the whole system and how it's going to work and stuff like that. And Mark basically went out on Patreon and on Twitter and was like, look, I think this is really cool hardware. And I'd love to have a Linux machine based on this hardware, but this is like a full-time job, like getting a fully supported Linux distribution that is well supported in all the drivers work. And it's not just kind of like that hacky 80% kind of thing is a full-time thing. He's like, look, if I can get to my level, like my contracting rate on Patreon, I will make this my full-time job to make the MacBook Pro, the MacBook Air and the whatever the desktop Mac, uh, Mac mini working. And he hit like, he hit his goal enough that he he's like, well, I'm not working on it full-time, but I'm working on it continuously now. And so he ended up launching a distribution, which is Azahi Linux, which I guess is the, I think it's like the Japanese varietal of the Macintosh Apple. So like there's uh, this pair between Macintosh uh, we and know. Azahi. There we go. <laughs> um, And so he called it Azahi Linux. And he started at the beginning of this year. Uh, like he's already gotten some of the bootloader stuff working. And he's like slowly working through, like he's already ripped apart one Mac and soldered onto test points and things like that to start like, reverse engineering the firmware and things like that. So it's going to be really interesting because he's the guy that was behind like a lot of the Wii and PlayStation, you know, uh, jailbreaks and things like that. So he's definitely someone who has experience in this area and, and yeah, sort of clearly. has that reverse engineering chops. But that's that great. was one of those yeah. things where I like, I love the hardware that Apple produces, but I really w- want to run Linux on it. So that's yeah,
1: cool. well, And I just, and this is where, again, Apple would do themselves no, they would do themselves no harm and would do themselves plenty of favors by making that an open system. There's no reason, like, the the vast majority of the market is going to continue to, to operate Apple software. And, like, they're not going to threaten themselves by allowing people to run, by opening that system up and by, opening source, by open sourcing their system. But, so hopefully Apple will encourage his effort um, because that's great. That, that, that sounds definitely interesting. And the M1 stuff is very interesting. You know, I mean, I think it, it really represents... What I think we're going to to see increasingly, which is this integration of hardware and software and beginning, you know, I, I think we are living in a golden age for hardware. And uh, But I can tell you, as someone, uh, you know, raising a, a bunch of money to go start a, an integrated hardware software company, I mean, it was heresy at some level. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. fortunately, there are VCs out there who who see the value in it. But, boy, for there is a whole bunch of this industry that really only wants to fund software as a service and does not see the value, uh, which is a shame because the most valuable companies on earth have all seen the value of integrating hardware and software together. Um, so I think the M1 re- is very interesting in that regard. I think we're going to start to see – we already are seeing that, but I'm, I'm hoping we will start to see a lot more um, because it, has been, it, it is easier to get your hands dirty with hardware and to make something real than it ever has been. Um, so I'm, I'm, I know, and I know you share that same hope that we're going to get, we're going to get more and more people developing at that lowest layer because it's interesting it's exciting and it's very available.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, like from the open source tooling, like the ability to do board design, like KICAD is wonderful now. Like I came back from not designing boards for almost 10 years and was able to drop into it and start designing boards within like a week. And now there's services like Oshpark or JLCPCB where you can get whole boards assembled for you for the cost of parts basically it's amazing what you can do and like not even just uh, simple boards like you can get six layer boards with controlled impedance with yeah. pre-populated parts to everything and i think it's it's even more interesting the stuff that's going on right now in the open fpga world of starting to get open source tooling and tool chains for doing hdl design and being able to iterate on that and i think even as things like risk 5 are coming down i'd love to see like the silicon version of JLC PCB where you're like you're like, okay, I can buy 10 chips on a wafer of some risk five based processor with like three peripherals that I really care about and be able to do that on like a two week turn for fifty bucks. Like I think that's huge. And I can see it coming. Like it's like I, Google I, I pilot program for it. Yeah, I can yeah. see
1: it coming. I can also see it coming slower than I would like. I mean, the with the, the yeah. I mean I, I I'm, I'm hopeful that, that you know, one of these folks, and it would certainly, it would seem to be overwhelmingly in Lattice's interest because all this stuff has been reverse engineered for Lattice anyway. So, yeah. you know, cause I, I, it would be great for one of these folks to really wholeheartedly embrace OpenEDA because I've never understood it's like you make the actual FPGA, and so nobody can actually, if you're the best thing to deploy an open system on, you know, people have to buy your product in order to, you, you would think that this is like, like, you have God's own open source revenue model. You would think that this would not be hard to understand, but it's it just, boy, they still fight it, you know, and the, because the, the, the proprietary, and we're making progress for sure. Um, but I would like us to make a, a lot more progress. I, I, actually, one of the things that we're really excited about, have you looked at BlueSpec at all? I haven't. Okay, so you should check out BlueSpec. BlueSpec okay. is like the hottest technology that people don't know about. So this was a proprietary technology for many years, uh, was opened up about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And this is, as one, of, uh, as one of our engineers put it, um, the BlueSpec is to Verilog what Rust is to assembly. It's like ah. it's that big a leap forward. So we've been, and it, it is effectively using a very strong type system to allow you to much more quickly, much more reliably build a design, build an FPGA-based design. So it is a, uh, and it's kind of like it's 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 this kind of great secret right now for no good reason. Mm. And the uh, you know we actually found out about it because we were uh we were ramping up the company a year ago uh we were interviewing someone who ultimately came to work for oxide and uh they were talking to one of our other engineers saying hey, you know the, the this blue spec thing is interesting but unfortunately it's all proprietary and we're trying to convince them to open it up and they open against it they did open it up and it is we, we've started to build actual things with it uh it's amazing Excellent. it's really really interesting so it very much merits um checking out and yeah, has a really interesting history too. I mean, it definitely comes from a legacy of actually trying to build useful things.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I've, I've just started getting into hardware design and I've, I've started getting, like you said, you mentioned lattice semiconductor. So I've got a, an IC 40 and an ECP five sitting in my drawer waiting until like, I get to that part of my to-do list of like, okay, well now I need to, cause it's also been like 10 years since I've done HDL, like VHDL or Verilog or anything like that. So I like, I have, the remembrance of how hardware design works in my brain, but I'm super excited to come back to like, and my gin or blue spec, if that's something that's interesting going on, like. So yeah. I would
1: go, to, I would go straight to blue spec, especially okay. given, given the rust background, it's going to make a lot of sense. Um And I think it's such a leap beyond system Verilog um, that it is, it's certainly the engineer who's gone deep into blue spec at oxide is never going back. I mean, it's been, nice. uh, it 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 has because we're just quickly able to I mean because just like with Rust I mean Rust allows you to with a with a strong type system and a bunch of other obviously features of the language but but Rust helps you develop a correct system and Bluespec is has a very similar zeitgeist.
0: Yeah, I have a I have a tiny computer project where where I'm I'm aiming to build sort of a retro computer field based on modern microcontrollers. So instead of building I mean, Commodore 64 parts or things like that. So I have this sort of Northbridge style architecture, but right now I'm using a microcontroller for muxing all of the SPI connections between the daughter cards. But this is one of those things that's, that's a no brainer to do with an FPGA because if you need yeah. six to eight SPI lanes that I'm basically treating like PCI, uh, yeah. like you should, I should be putting that into a memory mapped interface so that one microcontroller can just DMA in all of the messages from the simultaneous stuff. So like, that's exactly why I've bought an ICE 40 or an ECP 5 because that's exactly what I plan to do is, is replace essentially the North bridge from being a CPU to being an HDL core just because there's no reason I can't put a tiny little SPI logic core on there and then just attach it to a memory ring buffer essentially. And it's yep. exactly what an FPGA is designed for.
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah. I, that sounds like a great blue spec project. I would You're right. That's a perfect project for an FPGA and uh, that's definitely worth checking out for sure. What I'm looking for is, and I think we're, as we, you know, we're, we're doing, so I mean, at Oxide, we're doing, uh, we're not doing any ASIC design, but we are doing, boy, Mm. it feels like we're doing everything else. Uh, We got some FPGA work. Uh, We're definitely in board design. We're doing low level system software, operating system software, Uh, Hypervisor software, control plane software—the kind of the whole nine yards. Um, The thing that that I I, a couple things. One, I would love a book on the history of the PCB. Hmm. And you know, I asked this on on Twitter, and I got a lot of people who would know the answer saying, like, "Yeah, I don't know anything about that." And it's like, how we've got this actual incredible technological breakthrough, I think, in terms of the PCB. I mean, this is, as we're doing all of our board design, I'm you know, learning a lot as a, as a historically a, a, a low-level system software program, but definitely like system software in here. And we're learning a, a lot. More of
0: the design side of the PCB or more of like the actual history of like the FR4 layers that we use as PCBs today? The,
1: the, the, all of the above. The, 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 okay. the, the, the whole breakthrough of the printed circuit board Um, And what that has allowed us to do and how important materials are and, you know, that you ultimately are, you know, you kind of think you're in the digital domain and then then like, no, actually you are actually in the, it's all the analog domain at the end of the day. Um, And, you know, um, and how materials actually matter. And especially when, when when you get to high speed stuff, just like, to me, there's like a a lot of stuff that's super interesting there. I've been listening to the, to pick place podcast. I don't know if you've run across this one. I have, um, which is I, then I, great. There's the thing I, I, I really love about the kind of the hardware and low level system software podcasts. It just reminds me of why I found my calling in tech to begin with. I mean, it's just like everybody is like super supportive and they want to explain their work. They want people to understand Mm. what they're doing. You know, it's like, it's just, it feels very collaborative. And so anyway, this podcast, Pick Place podcast is definitely worth listening to as they are describing all of the the, the innards of building the PCB from from a perspective of of, of even the the assembly perspective, which is so many deep, interesting problems. It's just amazing. I mean, and I remember having this feeling, you know, 25 years ago, and I feel I've never actually really lost it. It's amazing that anything works at all once. (laughs) You, You know what I mean? It's like... We are, this technology, technological stack is so outrageously deep. And we have so stood on the shoulders of previous generations. I mean, to have like, you know, you look at, you know, your phone or, or, or your laptop and you've got a, I mean, you got a device that represents effectively all of human innovation. <laughs> you know, when yeah. you add it all up, it's just amazing. And, and it, it's so anyway, I've, I've been I've been looking. I don't know if you know of such a book, but I, I would love like the Sloan it needs to be like a Sloan Technology Series book mm. on the history of the PCB. I do if you read any the Sloan Technology Series, but they've got a I bunch have, of yeah, great yeah. histories of technology, and I feel like this is a big gap, certainly in my own education. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean that's definitely one of those things that there's a surprising knowledge gap. Like I was really lucky that I worked at a company that did avionics, so we actually in the first floor of our building we built all of the, the avionics in house. So one of the Gosh. first things that I got to do in, in one of my first weeks of work was they actually walked us through the assembly line of like, okay, this is where, you know, I think the boards were made out of house, like the actual PCBs, but the entire assembly and manufacturing steps. So they showed us like the inlet where they analyzed and quality checked PCBs. So essentially everything from electrical test to burn in test of the actual full systems and things like that. So pick and place machines, reflow, all of that kind of stuff. like through hole rework and, and all of that kind of stuff. And it was, it was really mind blowing. Cause I don't think anywhere in my university, like we had talked about circuits and we had talked about design, right. but no one had been like, no, but the actual stuff that you use, this is like, this is a circuit board. And I think, yeah, I mean, just thinking about like, I know a handful of those steps of like, you know, in the olden days they used to do, you know, big graph paper where they would do like litho projections and then they would shrink yeah. that down and, and there'd be like that. And, but that's mostly from like Twitter posts where I've seen people with old, you know, why are those traces curvy? Oh, because they used to draw them by hand instead of by a tool, which means that it wasn't like that. And even just thinking of, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one collected piece of knowledge of that. So now thanks for infecting me with that thought worm because now I'm well, going to be looking yeah, at it too.
1: And I just feel that like for a, for a, technological technology base that we literally all depend on every day i mean this is at truly at the bedrock of humanity it's amazing that there you would think there would be one book written about it or you know one historian that had gone into can you I, i'm curious to know like you know what what is the, the you know the kind of the history of the breakthroughs and and um Certainly explaining all these different components. Um, I mean, I just think like the I mean the pick and place machines are just amazing, you know, just the, yeah. and the, the level of precision involved. Anyway, it's it's all it's been really exciting to
0: okay. So we lost Brian there to a, a little bit of uh, malicious router unplugging, but uh, we've got him back now and we'll pick up where we were on pick and place machines.
1: Pick and place machines, yeah. No, just one that the whole the whole process I just find uh, mesmerizing and amazingly. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I just think is not broadly appreciated among technologists about, yeah. you know, this is at the back of everything you do. Every piece of software you write is ultimately run on a machine that has gone through this kind of a manufacturing process. Um, and, you know, for something that's so ubiquitous, I don't think it's commonly understood. It's certainly not among software engineers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if it's... <sighs> I wonder if it's one of those things where, when I see the world of software development, I, I see like groups of people who typically share things. So, if you talk about front end developers or back end developers or application developers, there's there's certain amounts of things that they keep, you know, quiet. Um, but a, a broad spectrum of the techniques that they use and the tools that they use are are much more openly shared and discussed at conferences and things like that. And I feel like I don't know if it's electrical engineering and and computer engineering and embedded engineering that's just sort of sitting in between that old school pattern of, you know, we only speak at academic conferences and things like that. And it's really only researchers publicly talking about things where it feels like the electrical and embedded world tends to share way fewer of the things that they do. And uh, in, in, In turn, this ends up making it way harder for this stuff to be publicly accessible. If you don't work at a company where you've been taught these things by the engineers who are, you know, sitting next to you and things like that. And I do think that's changing over the most recent couple of years, but I don't really know what it was like. Maybe it was just Silicon Valley and other companies seeing digital electronics or analog electronics as being such like an innovation and they had to prevent that information from leaking because they thought the techniques were so special and it was such a you know market leader where mechanical engineering has had a much longer time to mature. And I feel like there's maybe less secrecy, except for maybe materials and things like that. Um, yeah. But I'm, it's just so interesting to see over the course of my career from electronics and specifically embedded systems from going from something where like a development board meant you had to sign an NDA, pay 500 bucks, and you got a burn yeah. CD with a specific set of tools on it that only worked and only kind of worked for that. And like the introduction of open source and and the internet really into these technologies is slowly busting its way through from like the software side to starting to get into hardware, especially at the hobbyist level to now manufacturing techniques and, and even fabrication techniques starting to become more open source and people starting to see the same value that software developers have seen for maybe 10 years on this and seeing it across the entire Hardware design stack. And it's, it still blows my mind whenever I sit down with a company as a consultant or something like that. And they're so secretive in their process and so unwilling to take anything from open source and so unwilling to change anything that they do that it's, it's really mind blowing with my, when I've got one foot in the software world and one foot in the hardware world to just see how they haven't picked up on how good that can be. Yeah. And I think that that to a certain
1: degree, you've just got one foot in the past. I mean, in other words, that, that, attitude that you run into used to be pervasive in the software industry too. That was proprietary software. So that is the way the software industry worked. And that is software in the eighties. You know, that is, it is NDAs and it is, you know, hard to get eval copies and everything is secretive and so on. And so I, I think that, you know, we are just seeing the, that open source revolution, which really, you know, started honestly at the compilers, I think, first. Um, mm. And I mean, it'd be kind of interesting that, you know, where were some of the, the very earliest places? But, to, you know, my, I, I think that you look at like GCC and Perl being very, very early. And then, Kind of has has slowly gone into these other domains, and certainly into the operating systems um, and into the the, into databases and other system software, and it's just been making its way. But boy, it is slow as hell. Um, And I think part of the problem is the the lower you get, the deeper you get in the the stack. You know, there are fewer players, and it can stay proprietary for longer. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's always a bit heartbreaking to me how you know ARM. Is such a paradox, right? Because it's such a contrast where there are a bits of arm that are so open and bits of arm that are so proprietary. And it's, I, you know, I, I get that these, you know, the, the MCU companies need to need to be able to clearly have a business, but it just feels that the, the and I think you're saying the same thing, that it feels unnecessarily proprietary. Yeah. Um, in in so many levels, but I feel that that's I do feel that that's changing. I don't feel that that is, the one thing I would say is that I don't take the future for granted, and that it's a future that we need to work for. Um, yeah. and you know, you look at Risk Five. There's a lot that's really promising about Risk Five. There's also a lot of where people are kind of recreating some of the proprietary ecosystems around Risk Five, and like that's a huge problem, right? You know, I love. Raspberry Pi has made a, you know has put hardware in a lot more hands it's also more proprietary than it needs to be
0: um,
1: I mean anything
0: Broadcom the only way that Raspberry uh, Pi was able to succeed was because it was like 5x Broadcom engineers who already had all the data or already knew all the data sheets or they knew the right people to contact and the only way that they could I mean if you look at all of Raspberry I, this is a uh, a number from a couple of years ago so I'm sure it's it's less noticeable as it was then but I mean if you looked at all of the sales of the Raspberry Pi, like up to the Raspberry Pi 3, it basically equated to the tiniest white label Android right. uh, manufacturer. So like, and you, you sort of had to be that size for Broadcom to even talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. And the only way that Raspberry Pi was able to do that was because it was five people who helped design those systems. And so they already knew exactly what to ask and how to ask and where to ask and who to talk to and things like that. And yeah, it's really frustrating. And I wonder how much of this is a yeah the thing that that really feels different for me is is sort of this open exchange of knowledge is what i've i've really felt has been the difference in that it was sort of a self-defeating system and that these ecosystems like hardware design or embedded were so hard to get into for so long and i felt like the information was not there and the crowds that ran in in those those scenes were so insular where they're like oh you know it's it's when you think of the like old school software developer gray beard who's insult the bastard off operator from hell kind of kind of thing where like you know they insult anyone who comes and tries to learn and then people just walk away for no reason and starting to get these ecosystems i mean rust is a really good one for compiler design of i, I don't know if i've ever met a more friendly group of people working on a compiler than the folks <laughs> who are working on a rust compiler and the people who are using rust that is to build such a good point.
1: That yeah. is such a, because compiler people are historically not to paint them with too broad a brush, but uh, they've been a bit uh, not welcoming the newcomers. I think yes. is a fair characterization and you're right. The Rust community is very, very welcoming.
0: And it's it's so good to see the the community of hardware hobbyists and hardware designers. I mean, a number of the people that I follow on Twitter are always kind of helping out and building bridges. And when someone's like, hey, I'm trying to do this, where do I learn about this? Or they're making streams explaining like how to go from a designing KICAD to um, sending it to a fab and getting that all picked out and how to make sure that you're not making mistakes in the same way that I see people doing the same thing about Rust so I I think there's this I don't know next generation of, of collaborators and maybe they're just a generation that grew up on the internet and being helpful on the internet and building a community around the things that they do or they've come from these open source circles and they like to see it in different areas but I'm starting to see maybe I'm just tripping over these communities now but
1: it's starting to happen. I think that we are seeing it, and of course, you know where we, the home base for me is way really more on the on the, the server space, but we're starting to see it there as well. Um, I mean, the honestly, the best, the actually uh, maybe the most recent conference I went to, you know, it was over a year ago, uh, was the open source firmware conference. Um, mm-hmm. Was. Uh, it just reminded – it was the very best of conferences. It reminded me of what conferences really used to be, I felt like, kind of not when they were – before they got vendor-dominated. <laughs> uh, maybe I've had a bad – I've been on a bad streak of conferences. But it was just really – it was very collaborative. People were really ex- excited. And we're seeing now open source firmware on the server side in a very meaningful way. Um, I think there are a bunch of things. You know, I actually think that Spectre and Meltdown are playing a role here, actually. I think that the – because – I I can tell you that, you know, boy, I remember vividly talking to Intel in 2012 and just admonishing them about our need for open firmware. And it was a classic Intel conversation in that nobody in the room would disagree with you. Like, no, no, we totally get it, but it's never going to change. It's (laughs) never going to change. and. You know, it's really depressing when people things talk about things that are never going to change. Never is a very long time. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, here we are, you're not even a decade later, and we are seeing open firmware. Um, we're seeing open firmware from Intel. Um, we're not all the way there yet. There's a long way to go. There are a bunch of proprietary bits, um, and the, we call the computer within the computer. There are a bunch of computers within the computer that are not yet completely open. But we're getting there. We've made a a tremendous amount of progress. So I do think that that the open source is coming to those places. It has been resistant for a variety of reasons. But, you know, the great thing about open source is when it arrives, it can't be vanquished. It can't be defeated Mm -hmm. um, because it is just effectively information. And, you know, I think you're hard pressed to come up with a domain in which open source has uh, and has been extinguished. When I mean, people try, obviously, and they try to kind of reappropriatize things, but the genie does not really go back in the bottle. Um, so I do feel that once, because, in part, because open source you know, destroys business models in its wake. I mean, you can view it as the, 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 because it's very hard to directly monetize something that is otherwise freely available. Um, And the bar for that thing becomes very, very high. And so I think we're, we are seeing that come to, to, to firmware. We're seeing that come to hardware. I think, I share your confidence that it's going to happen for a bunch of reasons, but I also feel we can't take that for granted. It's a future that we all need to collectively work tor- towards assuring.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, my domain is definitely much more on the the Rust and embedded side, but I mean, even even that's how I felt. I mean, when I first saw Rust, I was I was working at a safety critical company, and I had just gotten finished working at that avionics company, and I was reading kind of the pre one stuff, and I went. If they actually deliver on that stuff, that's going to be like the next thing in 10 years for avionics. And that's kind of when I started learning it. And it's one of those things where I saw that and I went, yeah, that needs to happen. Like that's, that's going to be the future and it's got to happen. And that's really when I started getting involved in Rust Embedded. And I think, I mean, even Rust and Embedded, there's there's certainly already companies like Oxide who have picked it up really aggressively and are, are really benefiting from that, I hope. Uh, in, oh, absolutely. Uh,
1: Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. And you know, thank you to you, and for everyone that has that has been involved in working towards getting to where we are. We're look, you know, we you've already seen us participate in a bunch of different communities. You're going to see us um, give a bunch of stuff, make a bunch of stuff available. We are, we will be open source from top to bottom. Um, and I think that there are going to be a bunch of contributions that people are going to be very excited about. Um, and it's, you know, it's been honestly, it has been. I mean, there've been many delights in oxide, but boy, that has really been one of them. I mean, the rust has not disappointed, not just not disappointed. Rust has really delighted. <laughs> um, I find that I, you know, it's funny because we, the work we're doing now, um, we're really trying to do it from first principle. So you're really trying to mm-hmm. read, read the docs and, and, you know, write the device driver what have you which, as you know, is sadly not always possible because the documentation... <laughs> Sometimes the docs lie. <laughs> the docs, you know, is it a lie? It's definitely not the truth, whether it's the, whether That's it's fair. a lie or an oversight or... And, you know, fortunately, we've seen more open sourcing. So you can get, for example, from ST, which you we've know, got an ST part, um, and we're able to get drivers, right? from ST. Um, and so you're in the C driver to uh, to understand what you're doing incorrectly or understand what it's doing anyway. And boy, it's like, it, it, it almost feels uncomfortable to look at C now. I mean, mm-hmm. I spent, you know, I've spent my career as a C programmer and I would never contemplate anything but Rust for, the, for I mean, for many use cases, but especially that embedded use case because it just... It, the the other thing is like the the things that that historically can make Rust challenging just don't tend to get in the way in the embedded use case. Like you're not going to mm. have a weird multiple ownership thing or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like you're not going to be fighting all no like, data. you know there are situations where you're just like you know Rust is ne- not necessarily the right fit because you can end up um really end up. But like that's not the embedded use case at all. The embedded use case it I have found it had to be. Only um, a huge positive. So no, we're really, really happy about where we are, but uh, but especially where things are going, and very excited to be uh, helping out and contributing because it's it's very important to us.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like definitely, like you said, it's it's a multi-year push. I mean, I know. Other people had been pushing on it before me. I've been pushing on it for a couple of years. I'm even starting to get to the point where I'm starting to, there are enough people pushing where I can sort of take a breath and just start building things on top of, of Rust Embedded. And it's been really cool to see. But like like you said, it has taken a concerted effort from a lot of people. And, and a lot of people who, kind of like you were saying, it was just, as soon as they saw of that, they went, I'd be, I'd be mad to try anything else. (laughs) Like, and I feel like that's what I've seen is, is so many people, even when they're using rust for hobby stuff, they go back to their work and they're like, Oh oh no. Like, I'm just, I'm just kind of sad now that I have to do this. Yeah. Well, especially because I think that, you know, you, you
1: have the safety and then especially in these embedded systems size is the, is critically important. And you know, we, the, the, I think Rust has done astonishingly well. And again, kudos to you and to, to so many others who've, who have worked towards getting Rust to build. I mean, I, I kind of it's kind of amazing to me in terms of the ratio of binaries during a build process to actual artifact size. It's really hard to beat Rust where you have like six gigs of build artifacts to build something <laughs> that is like 300K or 200K, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, The, uh, it's just shocking how, um, really how small Rust is able to get, um, and and a real tribute to lots and lots and lots of folks and the work that they've done.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and being able to keep some of that stuff from build time. I mean, that's exactly what we've leveraged for knurling and things like that is, is, you know, keep all of the debugging stuff or even keep all the formatting stuff in compile time. And don't even put that in the binary. Just let your giant program that runs on your x86 machine worry about all of that. Why would you make your tiny, tiny machine worry about that?
1: Yeah. And I love that that zeitgeist and belief. I mean, one of my, you know, I had this, this blog post on Rust after the honeymoon, um, which I think people mm. were kind of bracing for me to be disappointed with Rust, but it really was talking about all the things that I loved about Rust um, and leading off with no standard, which is what has allowed all of this to happen. I mean, it's no standard that has... Uh, and. More or less without precedent, I know I, you know I know folks have said ADA did things like this, but the idea to have a language that has this that separates out core core functionality from standard functionality, it allows us as an embedded ecosystem to be in this much broader ecosystem, um which mm. has been Terrific. Um, So, you know, I I walked through um, a bunch of things that I loved in there, but one of the delightful surprises I had was the dwarf support and the dwarf that's omitted because Rust is sophisticated and it is going to inline really aggressively. And as someone who has dedicated their career more or less to understanding software, it's really important for me to develop tooling to help us understand that software and the fact that we do have all that dwarf allows us to do really interesting things and allows us to really the so i mean you know, i think we can do lots and lots and lots of interesting historically debugging of embedded systems has been poor
0: um, especially optimized embedded systems
1: optimized embedded systems the state of the art is is woeful. It's embarrassing, yeah. um, and the and especially for these systems where we're spending so much time getting them right. It's really important that we are able to actually debug them, and having all of that dwarf support really allows us to go to that optimized binary and really reason about it. So, no, I think it's it, it's a it's a tremendous asset. So, and I'm glad that that is. It's always nice when you you know you you kind of get into something thinking like God, I, you know, I there's some of these details I just don't know. How they're going to kind of roll out, and it's, it was just really nice and felt very affirming. That like, okay, there are other people in this community that share my values, um, which ultimately is what we should all be seeking in the technologies we deploy. Ultimately, we are all seeking communities that share our values more important than anything else. And I've just I've seen that um, over and over and over again in the Rust embedded community, uh, which has made it very uplifting to be a part of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the crowd that hangs out in the Embedded Rust Matrix room or formerly the IRC room and now the Matrix room are, are some of the absolute best people to chat with. I mean, I end up going to them even when it's not even a Rust thing or if it's just like a physical hardware thing because I know that the folks that hang out there have they've seen some stuff and, and they're generally like the crowd of people where I can be like, all right, stick with me. I'm about to do this terrible thing. What can I do to mitigate how terrible this is? And they go, ah, you're doing this, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing that. And they're like, okay, well, you've got like A, B, or C, and they're all terrible in different ways, but pick your pick your poison. But they're still like really positive and supportive. And I know that they've been through like similar similar experiences and things like that. And being able to see that side of things for the more, you know, the people who are at different places of plumbing through the stack, but also being able to see someone who's never used Rust and sometimes never even used Embedded before drop into that chat room and immediately get like four people walking them through step-by-step step of everything they need to do to get started and reference material they can go to that's been like the the mind-blowing thing of like i'd never like i had i was really lucky to work at a couple companies where i'd have two or three or four people that i worked with who were like that or a boss that was like that who could, who right. could really like mentor those kind of things and and understand what you were going through but um between those jobs and kind of open source i had you know, I always positively thought about open source, but I had never had that, that community feel to it of like, okay, this is like working with a really great group of colleagues who you can just either sit down and nerd out about or like who can fill in your knowledge gaps. And, you know, that was that was one of the big things when we were starting Ferris is that's exactly the kind of team that we wanted to have at Ferris. And there's, it's funny, we actually have this service called Rust Experts, which is like, we have a chat room where we just basically answer questions. So if people are like getting stuck or they don't know why it doesn't compile rather than paying for like a whole consultant, they can just join our chat room and they can ping us for, for answers. But we have our own version of that. We have like a separate one that's just like Ferris asks Ferris. And because we have like enough diversity of people from like a compiler background or a tooling background, there's so often where one of us is like, what is this syntax? Like I've never seen this syntax in Rust before. What is this? And then half the time someone in Ferris is like, oh, I wrote that. And (laughs) you're like, what? (laughs) So it's really awesome to be able to have those kind of communities and to see it starting to not just be like that one, you know, just the Rust community, but it's starting to become like, I don't know how to say it but like a fleet of of communities of like either the rust embedded community or the rust prime community or the discord or the zulip or inside of companies like i'm sure oxide has started to grow this kind of community with those similar values and seeing ferris grow those kind of communities with those kind of values has been really cool for me because those are i i always talk about you should build the playground you want to play in and that's been kind of like my my running mantra for rust embedded is is I've wanted a better experience for developing embedded systems from both a technological and both a, a and a community standpoint. And, yeah. you know, working on embedded rust has been a build the playground you want to build that you want to play in. And it's been really cool to see not just this one, but like a whole, you know, neighborhood of playgrounds starting to pop up in all different kinds of areas, whether it's video game design or hardware design or software design. And it's just, it's nice, you know what I
1: mean. It is nice. It is, isn't when it's kind of like you know, mm-hmm. it, you know, when you when you when you start a community and you kind of inculcate inculcate it with the values that you yourself hold or the values that you want to see held, it attracts people with those same values. And one of the things that I just that I love about the Rust community is the, the kind of the way knowledge is thought of. And because w- when you have people that are not intellectually secure, they mm-hmm. will. They will uh, cloister knowledge. They will hold on to knowledge, right? They don't actually want to actually because they themselves, you know, they, they, there's a strange, you know, power dynamic when they know your something. success
0: and, uh, is a threat to their success,
1: right? Or you know, all sorts of you know, I like, you know, I complicated. And you need to go talk about you know your relationship with your parents or whatever. But the with with rust, it I've always found it to be. And I've I found this to be true of the people that I most want to be around. And honestly, the, the, the most capable people I've ever worked with are people who are exactly the opposite around knowledge. They are not only are they, they, they are forthcoming with knowledge because they want you to know what they know. They want to lift you up. They want you to see what they see. And that's really uplifting. That feels great to be able, you know, where you feel like you can ask questions And uh, you know, there's so many questions that oxide you ask, and you know the answer is like okay, it's complicated, you know, like, okay. So, you know, it, or so many that start off with history lessons, which I love, you know, so many like, okay, so first <laughs> you need to know that like 15 years ago, there were, you know, four companies at war. And I, I just feel it's great when people are to uh, have that attitude towards knowledge, that knowledge is something not to be used to kind of bludgeon others with, but to uplift others and that we can go, you know, people get, it just, completely changes the tenor of the community. And I found that the, the, the rust community, uh, and, and, you, and you, there are all sorts of like symptoms that you see about that are all sorts of consequences of that one is that communities that, that use knowledge to, to lift up one another don't or tend to much less have the cult of personality. So, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is the kind of the absence of BDFLs in rust. And I think that that is part of the reason for that is because people of the way knowledge is treated, that knowledge is used to uplift others. So you don't actually have this kind of, you know, this one person that is overly revered by a community. Because what I've seen is just about every BDFL I've ever known is honestly, bluntly, overly revered. And most dangerous is when they begin to revere themselves. And that's when you end up with things that should be happening and aren't happening or shouldn't be happening and are happening because of, you know, you're into kind of one person's capriciousness or what have you. Um, Russ doesn't suffer those pathologies. And I think it all kind of goes back to that, uh, that, that exact zeitgeist that you're identifying where people are so helpful and they uplift one another. I think it's just, it's, it's just very important that we, Um, that we have it and then that we continue to encourage it. Positive communities. Let's do more of that. Let's do more of that. Yeah. I also think a part of me, I also think is that it's a positive community because the problem is really hard. I mean, I feel like when you are at the hardware software interface, you are at war. You are not at war with, against a person. (laughs) You are at war against a problem. And you know, it is layers, layers of problems, layers of problems. And I feel that that also, I think people are much more sympathetic to one another when the problems are so hard. <laughs> so I think that also yeah,
0: Especially at compilers or embedded systems and things like that. It's just like, like you said, it's, it's a hard problem. But the response to this is, I, I gave a talk recently and that was actually the punchline of one of my talks was, was it's a community that said, you know, computers are hard. Let's not make it any harder than it needs to be like that kind of thing of of, of that difference of like, exactly like you were talking about, about building kind of like an insular walled garden of knowledge versus active, like let's solve this problem or at least document this problem and never run into it again. Like Esteban Kuber has the saying that's like, there is no such thing as a bad programmer. There's only insufficiently advanced compilers. (laughs) Where like, that's the whole thing is that no one, like once the first person runs into a problem, Let's figure out the root cause of that problem and make it either in documentation or diagnostics or educational materials to just build bridges. You know what uh, I
1: mean? I absolutely, absolutely, and I think that when you, you know, what can we learn when someone does the wrong thing? What can we learn from that? You know, it, it, was it? You know, is it? Is it a documentation issue? Is it a? Is it an abstraction issue? Is there something that can be? And I think it's it just. It's interesting to ask those questions. Um, the, and it's important to ask those questions because that's how you make systems much, much better is when you learn not just one thing from a failure, uh, but when you learn three different things. And I certainly think that, you know, this is, you'll get, you know, talk about avionics, certainly is the, the absolute model there where every failure in aviation we learn a lot from. We don't learn just one thing. We learn many, many things because it takes many, many things to go wrong. To thankfully, these systems are so mature that a that to you know have a hull loss in aviation requires so many different things to go wrong at this point. Generally, uh, uh, before the 737 Max, I guess 737 Max was kind of a.
0: Well, there's also a 737 500 that went down like yesterday. I know, I
1: saw that. I know, which is uh, it, it, that is interesting. I don't know how I, I haven't seen any details on that yet in terms of like what. No, no I haven't either yet. But that was a 37
0: 500, right? That, that was not a. Yeah, it wasn't a Max. It wasn't a Max. So it would be interesting to know. You ex- you know, which the 500 has a very very reliable track record it does. it's been in operation for 20 30 years so it's it, it'll it be interesting to see if that ends up being weather or maintenance or maintenance or, or something or, else like yeah. that uh, you know i so the, the, there is one of
1: the kind of the the, the most interesting uh aviation mysteries but I, i've been borderline resolved but this the, the, the rudder hard over the 737 rudder hard over so the, the 737s had a really nasty habit under conditions that are still actually not completely understood where the the rudder would reverse and so a left rudder a left input would result in a right rudder which is and needless to say there were a and a group in Colorado there was a, a a Colorado a Colorado Springs 737 crash in the springs on final approach, because you're on final approach. You've got weight turbulence and what have you, and so you're kind of tapping the rudder, and you're tapping the rudder in the wrong direction. So the aircraft, and so you then the aircraft responds into the exactly the opposite of the way you intend. So you stomp on the rudder, and now the aircraft yeah. flips. Is what was 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 happening, and uh, there was a there's a great uh, there was a U.S. Air crash a 427 in Pennsylvania where th- there's a, a great book called The uh, Mystery of Flight 427 or something like that. Um, actually, it's one of those books that a friend borrowed, I think, and didn't return. You know, I generally, I've got a very, I like, generally, I don't let people borrow books because I know that I'm too mental about them. Like, I, I view them, and I think mm. that book may have, uh, but The Mystery of Flight 427, very, very good book about the rudder hard over and rudder reversal in 737. Um, and the it shows you how a, a system that is incredibly, I mean, 737, as you say, has got this incredible track record. But uh when you get to the actual problems, when you've got a great track record, it means that the problems that you do have are almost assuredly really, really interesting <laughs>
0: yeah yeah i mean when i was when I was working in avionics, there were in in the three years that I worked at that company there's a, in the in the product that I worked on, there were essentially two bugs that we had in the entire lifetime of of me working there. there were two bugs there, and one was poor inter-system documentation where something was supposed to send something and it didn't. And there, you know, there was edge cases in state machines basically. And so we ended up fixing that. The other one was like, I think I spent three months on that and, and I can't talk too much about what it was, but it ended up being something that was really like, okay. Like we had set these hard preconditions, like, you know, this will happen within this amount of time because we've analyzed the strength of the radio signals and the time, you know, round trip time, speed of light and things like that. And it turns out there was this one case where I think someone on the other side was doing something slightly out of spec and had a large, louder transmitter than they should have. And, and so like, I I can't spend too much, but like you said, it it was something that like we stared at whiteboards. And it's one of those things when you have units out in the field and you have these bugs that only happen once every thousand flight hours or ten thousand flight hours even just getting logging data for, for reproducing that and like the only thing you get is you go one pilot on a test flight said this happened and then like there was no recorded data there was no and so like finally we got someone who had a GoPro in the cockpit and they showed us the screen of it actually happening and we went oh okay and then luckily we got enough that on an actual test flight someone was running with all of the logging turned on and we caught it and so, like, then we were looking at this, like, all logging tracing data in the live replays, and we're just looking at that, and We're like, none of this makes sense. Like, uh. I, like, this is all five components that I am intimate. Like, the whole code base was like 50,000 lines of code. So, like, with the three of us in the room, we pretty much knew every line of that code, and we'd have been looking at it for three years and, like, just staring at it for months, going, like, yeah, we have the recording, but we have no idea how it could do that. Like, is there some weird? And, like, it eventually was like, Two of us were just sitting there in the office because like we had gotten another report that we had no recordings for. And we were just sitting there going, hey, this could never like for this to happen. It would have to be like I mean, something would have to be, like this would have to do this and this would have to do. Wait a minute. Yeah, right. OK, how could we simulate that? And like literally the two of us ran over to the test equipment bench and we found a piece of test equipment that could reproduce this ridiculous case that we came up with and we like we tweaked the test equipment all the way to the edge where it wasn't supposed to go and we got it to do that and like clear as day the bug popped up on the test equipment. oh like, that's great oh no <laughs> like <laughs> but you're right it, it was like three months of us staring at like reports and recordings of video and and logging replays and like curse, curse.
1: love 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 that feeling uh i think is just uh, unparalleled in software engineering. Oh,
0: it feels so good, but so bad for the three months leading up to it. It, it does, but you know that is like
1: because what you're talking about is so something that I do not understand for the life of me, and I, I but I am hell bent to change. But boy, it's it, it feels uphill. Why do we do so little post mortem analysis in software mm. engineering? So one of the things you know, I doing uh, OS development for you know whatever. However many years it's been 30 years now. Like I absolutely positively rely on a crash dump out of the system. When the system fails, we get a crash dump from that crash dump. We can actually we've got a full snapshot of state that we can actually go. And the and that has been absolutely essential for everything that I've developed. The that has the ability to get that post-mortem snapshot, that black box recorder, if you will, the log data in your example, has been absolutely essential. And yet we, do, you know, you look at like the, the, the linux's capacity to take a crash dump is very limited and, it, and it's and there is no culture in the linux kernel development community of debugging from crash dumps and i do not understand it to save i'm like how do you debug anything
0: because anybody tools like rr exist where you can like load state in and walk backwards from the scene of the crime you know what i mean
1: well, it, it, you can, just, uh, and I would say just more generally, RR, whether it's RR or something else, like like even absent the ability to replay it, you've got a, such an enormous amount of state there. And there is so much you can go do with that state. So one of the things that I did, you know, years ago is I, I came to view like every crash dump as being sacred. And what other things could we go find out of a crash dump? So one of the things I, this is all a C-based system, um, wrote a, um, a, a tool that did effectively post mortem garbage collection on the dump to find unreferenced uh, C objects, which we, because our allocator has, uh, has a bunch of instrumentation in it, we could have a stack trace that we could associate with that object. And over the years, found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kernel memory leaks that way. And often it would be like eight, you know, you would have leaked just eight bytes. But it's in a code path that if you hit that code path all the time, you'll run the system out of memory. And so, but, I mean, your story is, and I, I, I that I, that feeling of like I am, I've got this state that doesn't make sense, and I grind on it for some extended period of time, and then there is that that level of insight that allows me to actually go fit, and I'm like, wait a minute. So if I just do this over here, and then you reproduce exactly the problem that you've got, like that. I feel that it is only a fraction of software engineers that get to experience that and yet I feel that I mean I've likened it to like that's like a that's the walk-off home run equivalent <laughs> for a software engineer. I mean that is just like ball game over that you know it's like we th- this long journey is done. I've nailed it and that is so great, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of those, like, I, I think the next thing that we did is the two engineers, like the two of us that were in the room who we were talking about it, we went and got our boss who had been pulling his hair out about this for months, and we brought him into the room, and we didn't say anything. We just, come look at this. And we showed him, like, the display of it doing the wrong behavior. And, like, like we we ramped it up, and we got it to the erroneous behavior, and it did it, and he goes, what is that? Like, how how did you do that? And, like, like you said, it's that walk-off home run. I want to know at Oxide, so you've had a team going for a while now and you've been tackling interesting, challenging problems. Have you or anyone on your team had one of those deep cuts? Why is this not working? Or why is this working when it shouldn't be kind of moments? Or are you yet to have that joy? We
1: are still early. Um, So we have... Had I would say that those breakthroughs have been in the small, you know, the the real litmus test is like, where, can you remember where you were when you had one of these things? And I think that to a certain degree, it almost has to be on a deployed system. When you've got a system in development, things are still moving so quickly that you, and I think this is a part of the reason why software engineers, not enough software engineers experience that feeling because not enough software engineers actually have to stand by their code after it's been deployed long 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 into production so no i would say we are um not we will be there we will have those moments i would say that we are spending a lot of time developing the tooling that will so we, one of the things that we so we've got our own uh our own rust operating system that we'll be getting out there soon um which we're excited I've trying about. to
0: poke for details and no one's broken the line yet so i'm still very excited to hear about it Okay. All right. Well,
1: I, I'll, I'll give you some details there because it. it is actually super interesting. The, well, okay, I guess I, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't hold, I, I shouldn't tease you like that. So the, uh, so this is a, um, we are doing our own rust operating system called appropriately enough hubris. And you, you'll see more on hubris in a bit. I don't want to, I, I don't want to steal anyone's thunder. Um, we, we absolutely will open source it. Um, the problem that we saw is that when you're developing an embedded system, you are the, the operating systems that are out there are either effectively real-time executives that have no notion of memory protection whatsoever, or they are effectively, even if small, they are still full-blown operating systems that are de- designed to be completely dynamic. And what you actually want is something that's in between, because when you develop an embedded system, you actually know what is going to be all the tasks that you're going to have, you know, at build and link time. So you want to have a general purpose operating system in that like, no, I can run any task, but actually I'm going to know my tasks when I build it. Mm. And then when you, so then what we're going to build is a, a complete bundle where those tasks are all known. And it means that everything is effectively static in that system. So when a, I mean, there's some modicum of dynamic allocation, but you don't have, tasks do not come dynamically. They can't. They, because they are all known at, at, at that build-in link time. and that's allowed us but, to, but you have full memory protection in there. So it's very much, I think it's going to be actually, people are going to, really excited about it. I'm excited to get it out there for sure. There are, and I actually I'm it's been exciting to see how many different systems there are out there. So I don't think it's going to be kind of one system that will evolve by any means. But uh, we're excited to get out there. So so I've been working on the you know when I'm not CTOing my kind of direct technical contribution has been the debugger for hubris which we call humility appropriately enough. And one of the things that we're doing in there that has been valuable for me personally is the ability to take a crash dump of a running system, be able to attach to the the on-chip debugger and take a snapshot of its entire state, and then be able to debug it totally separately of the system. Then you can reset the system, because now you know, it feels to me like... you know again, I don't know how people develop systems without the ability to do this because to me it is so important um, where you now have something that can be separated out from that physical artifact and debugged separately. It can be debugged now, you know you've got a crash dump that can be passed around, debugged in parallel, and so on. Um, so uh, to me, that is a um, so I would say you asked for that aha moment. I would say the aha moments have all been of the smaller variety of problems you've kind of been working on for a day, not for a week or a month.
0: Which is a, a good, good thing. thing. I mean, that's exactly.
1: <laughs> um, but we know that we are trying to build a reliable computing system, so we know that there will be just from our lives past there will be really thorny problems that we will only see in the field. Now we're trying to obviously minimize those, and by building this system out of first from first principles, I do feel more confident in this system than any i have previously built because i am we have taken so many of these problems and solved it effectively ourselves which on the one hand seems crazy but on the other we don't regret having done any of that
0: yeah i mean that's the that's the safety critical approaches is you never say nothing can fail and so from like day one of the design you design that everything could fail so you always limit the blast radius of any single one piece of equipment failing. So like, it's one of those things where even if you have this critical failure of a single component, it's, you know, compartmentalized to that, or you have the sort of post mortem tools that you, you need to be able to very quickly unwind and figure out what that was rather than being totally without, uh, without information. And I, I wanted to share that. I definitely, you're not the only person who as an embedded developer feels that stack dumps are, or, or crash dumps are necessary. I've talked, to a couple of the folks who were software developers at yeah. Pebble. And they, they said that was one of the most valuable things that they built into the Pebble OS is that when it would crash, especially because they had user-defined code. So you would have these watch faces and applications that were written by third parties. So they would do yeah. weird things sometimes. So they said that one of the most valuable things that they had is when it would crash, it would record a huge amount of the operating system state and things like that to uh, a buffer. And then it would reset. And I think it had a crash dump depth of two. So you could always have two crashes before you uploaded it. And then the next time that it would connect to your phone over Bluetooth, it would upload, it would slow trickle, upload that crash dump and upload them to the servers. So you had diagnostics for essentially every crash, as long as it didn't crash more than two times in a row, for every crash that happened on Pebble. And for most of the time, they were really good at rebooting or at least rebooting so quickly that unless you were looking at your your watch when it crashed, you wouldn't even know that it crashed. So like one, it was a little sneaky in that they would pop back to a good state as quickly as they could. But then in the background, they'd be like, oh, uh, that crashed. You should probably figure out what that was. And they like having that kind of crash log and the other thing that they said was hugely useful, especially because they had third party code is they had essentially metrics on every sys call uh, that their operating system provided to figure out how much time was being spent in each syscall and they started figuring out oh there's this popular application that uses this one really heavily that we didn't think anyone would use and so they could actually behind the scenes start optimizing some of their syscalls to make some of these really popular heavily used applications start running better and use less battery life because it was actually it wasn't even how many times or how long they spent in those syscalls, but also i think they had the ability to like estimate battery usage based on that syscall and things like that. So they were doing all kinds of like metrics, pipelining and dashboards of all of these devices in the field, just because they're like, well, not only are we putting this embedded system out there with like an iterative release cycle, but also we're letting other people run software on our hardware, which means we have to deal with all of the fallout of this third party code. So like exactly the same reason they're like, we could not have done this without tooling.
1: That is really interesting. Yeah. I would love to read or listen to more about that. That is, that's great. I mean, it's got, it's such a, it's such a relief. Cause I, I didn't say sometimes you feel like this has been post bugging has been so important for us. And sometimes it feels like it feels so rarely used that sometimes you kind of feel like I, I'm, I i do not think I'm crazy. I think it's been uh, so it's, it's good to know that others have had that same experience. I, I mean, I think that it's, it's essential for developing systems that are ultimately reliable, robust systems.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I actually was lucky enough to go sit with a bunch of them. Some of them have gone on to work at Fitbit or Oculus, or some of them have started their own company like Memfault. So if you know Memfault, the Memfault yeah. folks, that's a bunch of ex-Pebble people and a couple of people from other spaces. And uh, I actually just this week had a a conversation with Francois and we had like two years ago, we had a conversation where you you said exactly the thing. Like, I feel like I'm not crazy where we just sat down and like we wrote down all the stuff that we used that we felt like every time we went to a new company, no one knew what we were talking about and they were make or break things. And I think even postmortem debugging was on that list. So that's great. Like we, we wrote down a table of contents of all of this stuff. And the plan was to like write it as a book and it never happened but recently i've started like picking up that table of contents again and starting to just slowly do like one article at a time because it's there's this goes back to that like lack of sharing of information in the embedded field of like yeah. if you've worked at a company where people have used this technique then you know you have to build this so like when you go it, to that it, it, new it, company it's the first piece of tooling that you build But like, if you never worked at that company, you just go, well, I have stone tools and that's it. You know what I mean? So like, I still have the table of contents public and I'd love to see, I'll share you the link of the, I'm starting to write an MD book of the table of contents and then starting to fill out the area. So I'll send you that table of contents and see how much of that, Overlaps with your experience and what you've already built at Oxide, and how much of that you go, oh, you didn't even mention this. Wait until I show you this. So like, oh yeah, I would love
1: to see it. I would love yeah. to see that. And obviously, debugging is very near and dear to my heart. Um, but and the I, there's a. A book that I hope to write one day, Dave Pacheco is a fellow oxide engineer, and I have been wanting to write the, the joy of debugging. Um, got some of those, mm-hmm. one of those things, like got you know a, a table of contents, some incredible chapters, but haven't been able to, you know, the, too many other interesting problems to solve. But <laughs> I think we've done the world a disservice to a certain degree because we haven't written some of this stuff down. And I love what Francois is doing at Memphold. I mean, I think that they're, you know, the, and I mean, the blog entries are incredibly useful, but just like that the, the, their whole approach is, is mm. great of trying to kind of solve those problems once and for all that everyone is kind of constantly resolving. And hopefully at the same time, giving people some of the, you know, helping them understand why these things are important because yeah. I, I, I do feel that, like the, with things like like dynamic instrumentation or postmortem debugging, two things that are very near and dear to my heart. Or best of all, combining those two, the I, one of the most valuable but but least well understood features of trace is uh, the ability to have postmortem DTrace, where you can pull a DTrace buffer out of a system that died from a crash dump you talk about the moments in my life of like yours, where you're finding that problem after three months, those problems have come from de- deploying detrace in production to, to to try to find really narrow problems and found an absolutely just dastardly memory, very serious memory corruption bug that way. Um, so the, but the, the, you know, if you get dynamic instrumentation or post debugging, if you don't have experience using those tools, you mm-hmm. don't appreciate what the tools can do for you. I mean. It, it's like with Rust. Honestly, if you've not programmed in Rust and you're a C programmer, you might not appreciate what the compiler can do for you. I mean, you were describing earlier that like there's no such thing as bad programmers, just like insufficiently advanced compiler technology. And I have to tell you, there's a time in my career where I would have dismissed that as crazy. Yep. And I, honestly, in the post-Rust world, I yeah, it's right. I agree with it. I think there's so many times that... Rust has, you know, it's, and it's not just memory safety. I feel like one of the features that Rust has that is not, uh, we don't talk about as much as integer safety. I mean, how many, because C, even like when you're running a linter on C, there are there's integer unsafe behavior that that linter is almost assuredly not going to warn you about because it would generate, it would be warning you about everything all of the time. One of the... I, you know, uh, this is I, this is terrible, but the uh, the wake-up call for me, what, D-Trace has had very few vulnerabilities. One of the vulnerabilities in my code was from an integer overflow issue on a bounds check that was then allowing for an escaped read, an unbounded read. Um, and uh, an attacker could piece that together with other things to build an attack on the system. And... One of the things I really appreciate about Rust is you are not going to get away with that without it actually telling you. But if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't experienced the integer unsafety issue and then haven't experienced then Rust making it effectively impossible for you to accidentally create those kinds of issues... It can be hard to express the value, so I'm I'm glad that you and and Francois are trying to you know trying to get it out there in terms of getting more people over that hump where they've experienced some of these things and experienced the value, is really the the key.
0: All right, well I could keep talking to you for probably six more hours, but it's it's 12:30 uh, in the morning here, so I'm I'm gonna have to let you go for now. But I would love to have you back another time. Before I wrap Always. up. Uh, I know you have a lot going on with oxide. Is there anything specific that you want to plug, or um, anything that you want to—you definitely want people to look at after they hear this?
1: Uh, you know, we. So I, I will give you a a, truce, a sneak peek. Um, we have a podcast on the metal, which has been a lot of fun, um, where we talk with people doing interesting work at the hardware software interface. COVID very much shut us down, and it shut us down so thoroughly. We had not wanted to do it remotely. We wanted to get back in the garage, so we've kind of been waiting for the vaccine, but we've been waiting for so long that we we took three of the episodes that we recorded post lockdown but after we kind of closed off season 1 we are going to be releasing those so we got you're going to get a little on the metal bonus so if people are oh, excellent and if you haven't listened to on the metal I would really encourage people to listen to that um not for oxide because we're just along for the ride but for the people that we spoke with I uh, just amazing amazing stories and ones that don't get told often enough. So it was, I felt like we were oral historians, honestly. Um, it was so much fun to go do. So I would encourage people to check out on the metal for sure.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. Like I said, uh, I'm super excited to have you on another time and, uh, looking forward to chatting soon.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, James. And, and congratulations on, on everything you've achieved with it, with embedded rust, um, and really enjoying listening to these podcasts. So thanks for doing this.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. And I'm, I, Can't wait to see the first launch of uh, the first Oxide product, because I'm so excited to see that. Yeah, (laughs) me (laughs) too. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Bye.